after this 111, the love of God. And that will be our actual topic today from our text in John chapter 17, the very love of God. John chapter 17. I was looking at this hymn book, if you note here, um, it does say in our hymn book that stanza three was written by uh, Meyer ben Isaac Naore. It's a, a this is a Jewish name. There is a question about stanza three in this hymn, as far as where it came from, uh, and I've tried to get a definitive answer to it, and I don't have it. But in any case, what I heard so far is that this Frederick Lehman heard a preacher use this this verse 3, could we with ink the ocean fill, and were the skies of parchment made, were every stock on earth a quill, and every man a scribe by trade, to write the love of God above, would drain the ocean dry, nor could the scroll contain the whole, though stretched sky to sky." beautiful analogy regardless where it came from. Lehman said he heard a preacher use it and it intrigued him much that he wanted to write a a hymn and include that in there and he wrote the uh, first two and uh, chorus verses and also this chorus refrain about the love of God being rich and pure. In any case, and the story was with that preacher, he said he he saw it written um, on either a prison wall or in an insane asylum, but nevertheless, it was there. It made an impact on him. This uh, mention here about this uh, rabbi, uh, Niori, mentioned here in verse 3, there's some work found about 1050, believe it or not, A.D., uh, in a Jewish hymn book that has some phraseology that seems essentially the same. So, in any case, we don't know exactly where that uh, came from, but we might have to sing that again when we close. I don't know. We'll just have to see. Put you on notice. Uh, I do like it because it's a, it's a great analogy that tries to express the love of God, and hence you cannot get the idea of a scroll. You, you couldn't roll out a scroll big enough to to write that down. And so it's a very comprehensive topic. I don't intend to um, uh, cover all of it here, obviously. But I do want to note a few things within our text of John chapter 17 that may help you have a better grasp, at least today, on God's love and specific aspects of it. Um, I'm reminded in Ephesians chapter 3, and I'll read this section. You go to John 17. But in, in, in Ephesians chapter 3 and verse 14, Paul specifically prays for the church, the church at Ephesus in particular, that they would have a fuller understanding of the love of God in Christ Jesus. He writes this, for this, for this reason I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of his glory he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his Spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your heart through faith, that you, being 
rooted and grounded in love. Is that love? That's the love of God in Christ. That you be rooted and grounded in love may have strength to comprehend with all the saints, that's you, what is the breadth and length and height and depth and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge. That you may be filled with the fullness of God. We can't get enough of it. Uh, It is a prayer that Paul prays for the church at at Ephesus and then all of the saints that this would be a rooting and a grounding in your faith. That you would have an increased awareness of, knowledge of, and be affected by the very love of Christ that surpasses Anything that you could actually know. But he prays for it. That, that you, this is a prayer for enlightenment, if you will. A realization, a greater realization of the significance of this truth. So, I think we should pray with Paul. That indeed, this prayer would be answered. To know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge. Let us pray. Father, we do come to you to pray that you will let us hear and heed the words of Christ today. I do pray that this great truth would not be something that falls superficially on our tongue, but really would affect us in a supernatural way. I pray for those who need to know this comfort of Christ and the specific love that He has shed for his saints. I pray that we indeed know that. And that our life would be filled with this fullness. Grounded and rooted in this truth. The very love of God for those that are in Christ. I pray this prayer would be answered even this day. In Christ's name. Amen. Well, that is my prayer today, and so let's look at the text, and I just want to note three things about it, and I'll point them out in a second, but I'll just read it in context where we're at in John chapter 17. John chapter 17 and verse 20, remember Jesus is in his high priestly prayer. He turns and takes a moment to say specifically he's not only praying for the 11 in the room but he's praying for those that will hear the word they preach who will then follow Christ and as it continues to this day this is a word very much directly for you verse 20 I don't ask for these only but for those who will believe in me through their word that they may be all be one just as you, Father, are in me, and I in you. That they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one even as we are one. I in them, and you in me. That they may become perfectly one. So that the world may know that you sent me and love them even as you love me. Father, I desire that they also whom you have given me may be with me where I am to see my glory. That you have given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. O righteous Father, even though the world doesn't know you, I know you. 
and these know that you have sent me. I made known to them your name, and I will continue to make it known that the love with which you have loved me may be in them and I in them. What I want to point out here, three, just there's much to speak of, and I don't intend to cover it all, but I do want you to note three things, and I wrote it, I think, on the back of your worship folder to help you out a little bit um, to keep track, and hopefully I'll be able to keep track. And the three concepts of the love of God that are, that's here in this text is the greatness of God's love, the grounds for God's love, and the goal. I'll put the greatness at verse 23, and we'll talk about that, how he loved us, the greatness, and that is in context. Here, it is the, those who would believe, so this is addressed to the saints, to those that are Christians, those that are disciples. And then the grounds for it is found in verse 24. He loved before the foundation. This is why God loves. The first one is, how does he love? Well, it's, it's beyond our capacity. Why is based on verse 24. And then look at verse 26. Um, here is the goal. The love in them. So the first one, greatness, loved even as he loved Christ. Verse 24, the grounds, love before the foundation. And then finally the goal, verse 26, that love that is in them. All right, so let's look at the first one here, mentioned in, as I mentioned it here, in verse 23. In this prayer from the Son to the Father, there is a revelation of the greatness of God's love for those that are in Christ that we would call Christians or disciples of Jesus Christ. This would be all the disciples, as we already noted in verse 20. This is a specific love that the Father has for those that are in Christ. Now this term, God's love, is often painted in pretty large brushstrokes today in the Christian world, if you will, in the religious world in general about God and who he is and the fact that he he is love, which indeed he is, and that he does love. And it is often thought, well, because of that, there's a general sense in which God loves, and therefore he loves everyone, each and everyone, in the exact same way. In fact, the Gospels often presented that way to people, that God's a loving God, and he is um, enamored with you, if you will. He loves you very much. I, I was going by the store the other day, and on the outside of it, on setting somewhere, it, it had a little gospel trap called a love story. It was uh, just yesterday I picked that up. Uh, sitting there it was interesting here, and uh, I'm not I'm putting this up to criticize it in general, but just to say, I think it gives a superficial idea of what God's love is because the way this thing goes through this presentation of the gospel, um, it essentially makes the person, that is the reader, the focus of this love. That is, 
God is trying really hard, it says, to keep you from going to hell. And he loves you a lot. And um, he just wants you to be with him. And he wants you to tell him how sorry you are that you're turning away from him. I'm not sure how compelling this is. But, but again, what it does, and the problem I have with it, although I think there is... Um, some good truth that is certainly uh, in there, but the problem is the focus then becomes that individual as if that is the primary focus of God's love. I'd argue that his love is, uh, is perfect in its expressions, but you have to remember that God is also just. He is righteous and he is holy. And uh, God will respond to rebellion in righteous judgment. And all that is in opposition to him, he will respond in the ways that are appropriate to those actions. His mercy, his grace, his kindness, and patience, which we'll talk about in a bit, are expressions of his love, but he will not ignore evil. He won't sweep it under the rug, if you will. But instead, he will deal with it directly. And that really is what needs to be emphasized. I'll read it for you as John records in his epistle, 1 John chapter 4. 1 John chapter 4. And my argument here is simply that God is the primary object of his affections. We certainly reap the benefits of it, but his love towards you is a manifestation of who he is, of his love. John, John writes this way in 1 John 4, verse 9. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. In this is love. Not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. That is a payment and a covering for our sin. The focus on the expression of, love, of God's love is not the, uh, the beneficiaries of it, which would be us. It is the fact that God is manifesting his love. That is, making his love made known. And how is it uh, clearly seen? It's the fact that he is sending his son into the world to those that are dead in their trespasses trespasses and sin, that they might live. This is love. The, the love really isn't the fact that we would see all this and respond in some form or fashion. Of course you would. The love is the expression of it in the sending of the Son to make propitiation for our sin. In this, then, there are, for those that would be in Christ, there is then no condemnation in them because they are covered by the very blood of Christ. But your sin has not been ignored. It hasn't been swept under the rug. It just hasn't been written off. It has been put on the account of Jesus Christ who did make a actual propitiation for sin. You want to turn to it, you can see it in Romans chapter 5. 
Romans chapter 5. I'll read it for you. Verse 6. While we were still weak at that at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. That's where the objects of the of his affection. Those that are ungodly. And he goes on to say, verse 7, For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would even dare to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. You see, what the object and the focus should be is on God who shows or demonstrates. We talk about God showing his glory, a demonstration of it. Well, one of the features of his glory is his love. And how is it demonstrated? Christ died for us. Who is the us here? It is, verse 6, the ungodly. In fact, it would be those that are rebellious. And Paul's analogy, you know, you might... Um, help out somebody who's a good person in the way we would calculate good, right? But who's going to uh, make a sacrifice for somebody who is absolutely wicked, evil, and really rebellious against you? This is what God has done. And therefore, the condition that results of it, verse 9, We have now then been justified by his blood. Much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. The wrath of God is the just response to that which is in rebellion against him. Love, I would say, is intrinsic in his nature. The wrath is an expression of his holy righteousness against that which is in opposition to him. In fact, that's what he says in verse 10. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by, by the death of his son, much more now than we are reconciled shall we be saved by his life. And then more than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received this, re- this reconciliation. This is the love of God that is expressed to those that are in Christ. Ungodly, who have no condemnation because Christ took that condemnation on him, propitiated, that is paid for the penalty, which the wages of sin we know is death. But back to our text, when we talk about the greatness, yes, it is greatness that our sins have been atoned for. It is the expression of God's love. But if you go back to our text and look at verse 23, here Jesus gives us a hint of this greatness of his love that maybe you haven't thought much about. I want you to notice this little phrase in verse 23 of chapter 17. He prays for his disciples. He prays for their unity. And that they would know, of course, Christ. In other words, they would truly believe in Christ that you sent me. And then this next phrase, and love them even as you loved me. See this little phrase here, even as, 
kathos in Greek here. It is a comparative uh, phrase we have here in English as well, even as you can weigh that out. It, it simply means just as or to the same degree as. Now here you might scratch your head. We're talking about an insight into the love of God for those that are in Christ. Here, Christ is explaining that this love, the Father for the Son, this type of love then would be the same love that those that are in Christ would have. It describes a new relationship with the the believer and with God. It isn't just that you have been given a ticket to heaven and an escape from hell. It isn't that you just have been graced, given a gift, and mercy, not getting punishment and judgment, but a new, intimate, personal relationship. And I know there's a certain degree of mystery in in us trying to grasp this, but I just want to get you one aspect of this, that the love that he's talking about being expressed, this new relationship between God and man in our union with Christ here has been established and then are said to be beloved of God. What does it mean to be in Christ and be beloved of God? Think of the relationship of the Father and the Son even as, if you will. He's using that in a comparative tone to recognize how much those that are in Christ are truly loved. I'm not sure that we recognize that enough. I think it would change a lot of how we thought. I'm not trying to build up some sort of self-esteem because this isn't based on what you might do. It's who you are in Christ Jesus You're not Christ, but you're loved as Christ. God, the Father, doesn't speak audibly much. But in the Gospels, there's a few times that are recorded. Do you remember the baptism of Christ? Matthew 3, 17, a voice, an audible voice was heard from heaven. And what did it say? This is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. I hope you grasp what I'm trying to say. I'm not trying to say how special you are. But I am saying the relationship now, if you're in Christ, puts you in a unique position that just as the Father would love the Son, so God indeed loves you, and you can be called beloved. To say that the Father loves you as he loves the Son, there can be no greater love, can there? There's nothing. It's not like a hierarchy. Okay, well, here's the order. There is no greater. We understand it's all of his grace. It's all of his mercy. We don't merit it. 
But we need to, as Paul prayed, understand this to a greater degree. Those that are in Christ are beloved by God without partiality. And I think we have a hard time with that because um, I guess all of our expressions to some degree have a certain amount of partiality. We might like this person better than that person or right have greater affections for this or that and, and good reasons for it in many cases. But here, it's all of those that are in Christ are loved as the Son. God doesn't rank up, oh, well, I love this one here more because they do a lot better job (laughs) at what I told them. No, all of those that are in Christ, made saints, are beloved of God. Paul would tell this church at Ephesus that all of this is brought about to praise his glorious grace which he has blessed us with in the beloved. Ephesians 1.6 Your union with Christ then, don't miss this, makes you beloved. I don't care if you lose everything that you have as far as relationships in this world. And I pray that you wouldn't. But many people can become greatly broken hearted, disappointed because of experiences they might have in life and maybe at some point they think you know does anybody really love me can I tell you if you're in Christ Jesus you couldn't be more beloved there's no greater degree and it is Paul's prayer that you would know that it is mine as well I'll just give you one example and I'll have to move on it's worth looking at because Using this kind of terminology, it's helpful to think of it by way of analogy. And Jesus does that in Matthew chapter 7. I think it's worth looking at. Matthew 7. And I'll begin with verse 7. Love, this beloved state, is based, of course, on our union with Christ. It is a distinction in which God's love is expressed. There is a general sense in the, in the world. But here it's specifically for those that are united to Christ, are blessed in the beloved, and hence we can say adopted into the family of God, children, brothers and sisters, Christ being the first fruit. And so it's based on that intimate, familial relationship that is a family type of love that God has that is going to result in the answer and to your prayer as well as the option indeed to do that in verse 7 of chapter 7 of Matthew. Here Jesus says then, ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find and knock and it will be opened to you. Everyone who asks receives everyone and the one who seeks finds and the one who knocks, it shall be opened. On what basis? It is because the Father loves the Son 
And God loves those that are in Christ just as much. And here's the analogy that he gives. This is why there is an answer to prayer. Which one of you, if his son asks him for bread, would give him a stone? Or if he asked for a fish, would give him a serpent? Of course you wouldn't do that. If, unless you were insane, right? I mean, if, if, you're, if your kid asks you for some help and it's something that you can provide, something necessary in particular, something to eat, you're not going to let the kid starve. You wouldn't give him something that's going to harm him intentionally. And then the response in verse 11, if you then who are evil, in what sense? Well, in comparison to God, right? All of us would be evil. We all have sin in our life. Evil in comparison to the perfect righteousness of God. Even the best father, that's what he's saying, would be evil in compared to God the Father. If you being evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father who is in heaven give you good things to those who ask him? Ask him. Recognize the fact that you're beloved. My children don't have any problem asking me for stuff. I wish they'd stop a little bit. My ability to provide for them is limited. God's ability to provide for you is not. And you are absolutely beloved by God. This is a a familial relationship. That begins in your union in Christ. And is the basis for you to cry out. Abba Father. And ask. Because of this relationship. Beloved in Christ. Back to our text in verse 24 then. 23 indicates this even as to focus on the greatness of the love with which God loves those that are in Christ, disciples, Christians. But what's the basis of it? What's the grounding for it? And here it's explained in verse 24 where Jesus wants his beloved to be with him to see his glory the expression of the beauty of his attributes. Specifically here, we're talking about love. That you have given me because you love me before the foundation of the world. So, the verse 23, Father even as, and here is an expression of how that is. This love is not only transcending, greater than you can imagine, But its foundations are from the beginning of the world. This is an expression here, this foundation. It's an expression that indicates, if you will, obviously what? Before time began. Our concept of time begins when the infinite God creates. In the beginning, God created 
that's how we kind of measure that which is finite before creation. Creation creates time. The expression here is before the beginning of time. Before anything happened. Certainly before you were born. And I know this might be hard to grasp. But this is what it's talking about. The foundation of love. So it isn't based on how lovable you are. (laughs) If that's what the basis you would be in trouble. But here the basis for it. The grounds of it is in the infinite mind of God. There's a sense in which you could, I think you could argue, and we're not given what those specifics are, but this love that God has for those that are in Christ has always existed. It is expressed, certainly, in time. Now here, I invite you to pair this up. We'll look, I'll have to go quickly, but we'll look at Ephesians chapter 1 because it expresses it so succinctly and so well. Ephesians chapter 1 verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in heavenly places. This is the blessing. It is associated with this idea of love. We're blessed. And then how does that work out? Verse 4, as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world. Linking it up to this other passage about Christ's love when he expresses it in verse 24 of 17. This love is expressed before the foundation of the world. And here it is, is the same idea is repeated specifically towards the saints who have been blessed in Christ. And this election in Christ began before the foundation of the world. That's the grounds for it. In this regard, we would say it, there is no merit on our behalf to be blessed, to receive this love. This is all God's design and plan. What does that blessing look like? The rest of verse 4, that we should be holy and blameless before him in love. Now, I know some of your translations have a, uh, end the sentence him and then start a new one in love, but uh, I think the construction of it actually, it is a three characteristics here, holy, blameless, and beloved. You can have that term. I think that fits better. Remember, there was no punctuation in the original. That was that supplied by translators to kind of help us. I think they miss the exegesis. I won't get into that here. But I think the, the point is describing that those that are in Christ, they are holy, that is, made perfect before God, blameless, without any transgressions, because Christ has borne them, and that they are beloved. This is what he predestined. Plan, verse 5, for the adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will to the praise of his glorious grace which he has blessed us in the beloved one. That would be Christ. 
We call this the doctrine of election and predestination, that is the choosing and the pre-planning. It isn't a theological abstraction for debate. I understand how many struggle trying to resolve the tension between divine will, which is clearly expressed here, the choosing before the foundation, the loving, if you will, the beloved. There's another way to express the same thing in verse uh, 24 of chapter 17. However, this theological tension is only unresolved in our own mind. This is a common thing when you look to the greatness of who God is. The problem of evil, for example, troubles many even in our day. How could God allow such evil? Is he not strong enough to restrain or stop evil? Of course he is. Does he, does he care? Is he actually good? You have to go look at scripture to find out. It describes who God is. He is loving kindness. From everlasting to everlasting. He is a God who always does good. He always does right. Scripture is clear of where the problem is. Of evil comes from. It is from the devil who is indeed the father of lies. God's purpose in all of that. Scripture tells us, although we may not fully understand, it is for his glory to be displayed. In the case of the redemption of the saints, it's revealed to us in Scripture that his love for those that are in Christ is from the very foundation of the world. It is from his mind and his purpose and his decree for the expression of the glory of his grace in which we would praise him. It is that his glory would be made known. That it would be expressed. It is in the case here with the redemption of the saints because he indeed first loved us. This love is experienced in time, no doubt, but it has existed before the existence of time. God has foreordained it, or as Paul would say in Romans 8, 29, those whom he foreknew. It isn't that just he knew about you. He determined it from the very beginning, verse 28, 9 of Romans 8, to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. God knows from the you and has foreloved, if you will, from the very foundation of the world. No wonder the psalmist could say this in Psalm 139, I praise you for I'm fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works. My soul knows it well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was being made in secret, intricately woven in the depths of the earth. Your eyes saw my unformed substance, and in your book were written every one of them. The days that were formed for me, when as yet there were none of them. How precious to me are your thoughts, O God. How vast the sum of them. 
Whatever we think about God's love, it, it isn't great enough. It isn't just that he knows who you are. He has decreed the very days of your life to demonstrate his glory. The grounds then of it cannot be based on anything that we do. It is all his work. When we become, I would say, aware of this through the regeneration of the Holy Spirit in our heart, our response then is repentance and faith. It looks like praise. It looks like seeing the significance of the love of God in Christ Jesus to the glory of his grace. This final point here, in back to chapter 17 and verse 26. All right, God's love is greater than we could imagine. The grounds of it, of course, is on his own uh, expression of his glory, right? Not uh, in our merit. But finally, the goal, if you will, or, or the purpose of it, back to 17 and verse 26 Jesus expresses this, that the love with which you have loved me may be in them and I in them. As I mentioned that God's primary purpose is that his glory would be displayed. That is the excellence of his perfections to, to be demonstrated. That's, that's what it's driving for. Look at back to verse 24. Christ's desire for the saints is to do what? To see his glory. See the beauty of his perfections. That beauty which existed always, but for it to be manifested and made known. How is this then going to be answered? How is it going to be seen, if you will? By Christ making it known, verse 26. He says, I've made your name known. Specifically, God. And by saying his name, that is, all of who, who he is. Here in context, we're dealing with one aspect of it, that is, his love. That love that perfectly existed within the Godhead is made manifest, or that is made known by Christ. This mediating work he says, I'll continue to make it known, verse 26. It results in a character change of God's people in which they express this relationship of love. Now here you can listen or I'll have two texts I'll finish up with. You can listen to this one, it's familiar, and then turn to 1 John chapter 4 and I'll finish up with that. But I just want to pause a minute when we think about this aspect of love to make sure we have it defined uh, and described uh, well here. He wants to make God's love known. That is, to change the very character of God's people that they will then express the love of God in this world in which we live. What is this love? It's demonstrated in our actions towards one another. But what is it? I think 1 Corinthians 13, 
and I've mentioned this before, uh, it's, it's a great well to go to, to drink of this great truth. It defines love, 1 Corinthians 13. When it says, and, I, and again, I don't think this is all this is, but this is mostly what it is. It's not just an emotional connection or sympathetic responses. I'm not going to dismiss that. That's part of it for sure. But primarily it is actions. Actions uh, it demonstrated in actions one towards another. 1 Corinthians 13, 4, love is patient and kind. I like to define Patience as mercy and kindness as grace. Those theological terms. Think about it. Patience. What's patience? Not hitting that person in the nose when they deserve it. (laughs) Okay? You're patient. You're merciful. You could. Maybe you could injure them. But you don't do it. Kind pairs with grace. That is, giving something that is unmerited or undeserved. That's what kindness is. Oh, you didn't do this because you wanted to get something in return. You did this because it was a generosity of your heart. A gift. That's what grace is. I think that is a great way to boil down the concept of love in its essence to aspects. That which God certainly has demonstrated. And beloved, when you are patient and kind, not just because you're a patient and kind disposition, but because it is the very love of Christ that is constraining you from evil and compelling you to good. This is a work of the Holy Spirit in the life of the believer that demonstrates the very goal of God's glory to be displayed even in this life. Continues to then flesh out how that works. Doesn't boast. Doesn't envy. It's not arrogant. Not rude. Doesn't insist on its own way. Not irritable or resentful. Let me scratch that irritable one out. (laughs) I have a tough time with this. I don't know if you do. But anyway. Preaching to the choir here. It, it doesn't rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices in the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never ends. There's no end to it. That's the point. The point of our text is that love of God here, characterized by the love the Father has for the Son, would now be an identifying characteristic of the believer. The character quality is brought through, brought about, should I say, through the regeneration of the heart. And it is increasingly manifested as the believer grows in grace and knowledge of the Lord. All right, I said I'd finish, I will. 1 John chapter 4, I've already alluded to this text, but I want to see a little bit more of it to, um, to demonstrate this. As far as description of love, here John does a good job at um, expressing this, and we'll just walk through some of this uh, real quick. Look at verse 7 of 1 John chapter 4. 
<laughs> because of the greatness of God's love, because of the grounds of it, and because of the goal that is then to express it, the believer then is called to then engage, if you will, to have this be demonstrated in your life. And based on that, John appeals, verse 7, then beloved, or think of this, loved ones, those that are beloved in Christ, those that couldn't be loved anymore, then let us love one another. That should be the natural response from the regenerate heart. Why? For love is from God. And whoever has been born of God knows God. Anyone, on contrary to that, who doesn't know God, doesn't love, should I say, doesn't know God. Because God is love. What he's talking about here is, you have a, in Christ you have a new nature with a new capacity. But then we were called to put to death the deeds of the flesh that this indeed would be expressed were commanded then to express and exercise this principle. What's love? And I've already mentioned it. In this, love of God was manifested in among us that God sent his son in the world that we might live through him. It is that he made a propitiation for our sin, verse 10. Based on that, verse 11 Beloved, and he addresses those that are in Christ one more time as loved ones, right? Can't be loved anymore. Beloved, if God so loved us, we ought also to love one another. The basis for our love isn't the fact that the other person may be lovely or deserving, hence the idea of what? patience and kindness or grace and mercy. It's based on what God has done for those that are then called beloved. Verse 12, no one has ever seen God. And that's an interesting phrase. Think about it. If we love one another, God abides in us and his love is perfected in us. That is, the very love of God is going to be demonstrated in your very life. And it is by this that we know him. That we abide with him, verse 13. Why? Because he has given us his spirit. And we have, been, we have seen and testified that the Father has sent his Son to, to be the Savior of the world. Whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in him and he in God. And so we have come to know and believe that the love of God has for us. God is love. And whoever abides in love abides in God. And God abides in him. By this, love is perfected within us. That is, it is matured, it is demonstrated, so that we would have confidence in the day of judgment, because he is also, because as he is, so also are we in this world. There's no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. Fear has to do with punishment, whoever fears has not been perfected in love. Again, looking towards this maturity in your relationship with God. Why do we love? We love because he first loved us. 
If anyone says, I love God, and then he hates his brother, he's a liar. For whoever doesn't love his brother whom he cannot see, or or whom he has seen, should I say, cannot love God whom he has not seen. And this is the commandment we have from him. Whoever loves God must also love his brother. What is he saying? That this is the goal and purpose of this love is that it would actually have a practical manifestation in the world in which we live so that the world would know the love of God and how are they going to know it? They're going to look at God's people. Jump back to verse 23. So that the world may know that you sent me and love them even as you love me. It is a, the love of God for us, in us, is made, manifested to the world. I heard one commentator call this an apologetic of glory. I like that phrase, right? That's our testimony. Apologetic of God's glory, what? His love demonstrated within the church, within God's people. Let us close in prayer. Father, I'm thankful for the love of God that we have in Christ Jesus that has been granted to us. A special, unique relationship beloved by you. Not based on anything that we might have done to be acceptable in your sight, but because of your perfect love manifested to us. And I pray for myself and your people that we would be challenged each day to demonstrate that more in a practical way in all the various relationships that we have, but particularly among the saints. I pray that your love would be demonstrated and be a compelling witness to your glory as we wait the day for Christ's soon return. I pray in Christ's name. Amen. How beloved, I'll give you a moment to think on these things. Take a moment um, even now.